The scripture for our homily this morning is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 13 through 15. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 13 through 15. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved of the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it showcases your son, the sovereign grace that you have poured out as you have pursued us. You've brought us from death into life. You have brought us from darkness into life. You have brought us from condemnation into forgiveness. And this you have done in the person and the work of your Son, our Lord, to whom we delight now to give praise. We ask that you would show us his beauty, his glory, that we might love him more. And we ask this in Christ. Amen. Children, uh, I figured it might come up later, so I figured I'd ask now to get the practice in. What are you grateful for? (laughs) Do you have this tradition before the meal? Everyone goes around and they get to say uh, what they're grateful for, what they're thankful for. I've been asking myself this question over the past uh, two weeks or so. And I find that I say thank you or thanks uh, far more frequently than I actually am thankful It's a harder question to ask, well, what am I really grateful for? Well, partly the list will depend upon your definition of to give thanks. Thought, well, sometimes we take words for granted, so maybe I'll look that up. Maybe there'll be some sort of insight in that. So I looked up the word that Paul uses in our passage. He says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. What does that mean, to give thanks? I found a pithy little definition that I thought was helpful. To give thanks means to express appreciation for a blessing or a benefit received. It means it stands to reason that you'll be thankful for the things that you perceive to be a blessing or a benefit. Well, that's dicey territory. Because sometimes things aren't always as they seem. Children, you'd be hard-pressed, I imagine, when asked what you're thankful for to say school, even though an education is a great blessing. Maybe you might even be hard-pressed to say my brother or my sister, but family is a great blessing. So sometimes things aren't always what they seem. Paul says other believers are a great blessing and benefit to him. Twice in his letter, it's shocking, he opens his letter, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is right. And then our passage, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved of 
the Lord. As you gather around your Thanksgiving meals later today, how quickly will other believers come to mind as that for which you're grateful? It's easier, I think, to see one another as burdens. Sometimes we can kind of be a drag. (laughs) Paul would not have been unaware of this. Even the congregation in Thessalonica was undergoing its share of difficulties. Paul's writing to a congregation that's currently being confused by theological disagreement. Some had thought that the day of the Lord had actually already come and that the believers were left to figure out what that meant if they were not involved in it. This was bound up with an even larger theological issue of how do we as the first century church discern what is true revelation from God? Is it just what Paul writes? Is it this oral tradition that's circulating, that's associated with the apostles? What about these prophets that are rolling through giving revelation? What if they say something that contradicts what Paul says? How do we sort that out? Likely, that was causing a fair bit of disagreement in the congregation. Similarly, there was a practical concern that Paul had to address in his letter. Some people were refusing to work. They're just refusing to work, becoming a a needless burden on the rest of the congregation, and Paul had to chastise them. He says, life together is difficult. And yet still, it's right that I give thanks for you, brothers and sisters, to the Lord. And so, how does that make sense? How can both those things be true? A legitimate difficulty and yet authentic reason to give thanks for one another. Well, this morning I'd like to point out two reasons why it's right that we give thanks for one another. The first reason, we've all been spared a fate worse than death and have been given a blessing better than life. Look at the first word of verse 13 in our passage. He says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Well, but is setting up a contrast. He says, but we ought also we ought to give thanks God for you. So he's drawing a contrast with what went immediately before that and what went immediately before that. Paul introduces us to a different group, a group that he actually draws attention to in verse 8. He introduces this group by saying, those these are those who do not Obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He sees two groups, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the church, those who do follow the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, I ought to give thanks to God for you because you obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, does he flush out this juxtaposition any further? He does. We learn a bit more about this other group. In chapter 2, verse 10, we learn they're perishing. In chapter 2, verse 10, we learn they refused to love the truth. In chapter 2, verse 11, we learn that they believe what is false. Chapter 2, verse 12, they have pleasure in unrighteousness. And then perhaps most unsettling, most terrifying, chapter 1, verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. That's one group 
Paul says, but we ought to give thanks to God for you. Why? Because you have a different lot. Because something is different. What's different? He says, you believe the truth. Chapter 2, verse 11. They believed the lie. He says, you've been called by our gospel. Chapter 2, verse 14. They refused to obey the gospel. You've been sanctified by the Spirit. Chapter 2, 13. They delight in unrighteousness. You're set out to obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2.14 Their end is separation from the presence of, Lord, of the Lord and the glory uh, of Jesus Christ. Paul looks out over this whole planet and he sees two groups. Those who reject the gospel and those who have accepted the gospel. And he says we give thanks to God for you because you've accepted the gospel. He gives thanks to God because you've accepted the gospel. The fact that you've accepted the gospel for Paul signals that you participate, that God himself has brought you into participation of the sovereign salvation that he is working. He looks at the congregation and he sees those who believe in Jesus. And this signals that they are beloved of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.4 For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Well, how do you know? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The faith that this congregation has signals that they are objects of God's love. The Father has chosen them for salvation. Jesus Christ has laid down their life that they might be forgiven. The Holy Spirit has secured them and Paul delights to give thanksgiving to God for the salvation that he has worked. But we said that giving thanks is for a blessing or a benefit received. Paul here isn't delighting that he's been saved. He's delighting that you've been saved. How is that a blessing or a benefit to Paul, we have a paradigm for this. I've been struck by it of late. Children, nope. Parents turn, sorry, you got first. Parents, have you ever felt yourself overcome with gratitude for a good that your child has received? Similarly, have you ever felt yourself overcome with gratitude as a parent or a harm that your child has been spared. This is our paradigm of selfless delight. I've been struck by this over the last year as I've become a father recently. My heart is knit to my daughter's heart in such a way that when she rejoices, I rejoice. When she weeps, I weep. What she feels, I feel, not because it's an immediate effect to me, but because I'm interested. I'm interested as a parent is interested in their child and what befalls her. It's no coincidence that Paul gives thanks for the salvation that the congregation receives, and he simultaneously uses this rich me metaphor of parenthood to construct his relationship to them. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and eight, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. 
So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own bodies, because you had become very dear to us. Who knows better than mothers what it means to give their body for another? Nine months, they carry a life within them. And even after the birth, they lend their body to the sustenance and life of another. Or a father, 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul is delighting in the fate that the congregation has been spared and the portion that they have been allotted in Christ as a parent delights in the good of their children. 1 Thessalonians 3.9 For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God. Their joy is His joy. And this isn't something that's reserved just for Paul. This is characteristic of the household of God where the hearts in, in which the love of God has been shed abroad are knit together. And this starts because we're reflecting God's own heart. God who did not spare His own Son that we might live. The Son who did not cling to His own life but laid it down that we might live. The Spirit which selflessly exalts Christ so that we might see Him and live. Paul laying down his own body so that the gospel might reach the end of the kingdom and people might live. Ministers laying down their lives so that you might live and one another. Learning to selflessly rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is the reality of the household of God. This is the privilege of fellowship with the Spirit. But it's not just a selfless thanksgiving that Paul lifts up. Paul also sees in the, the faith, the congregation, an immediate blessing as well. And this is the second reason we give thanks for one another, even in the midst of difficulty. Second reason, your faith is a testimony to the power and truth of the gospel. And that comforts and strengthens my faith. Did you catch that? Your faith, the fact that you believe, is a testimony to the power and truth of the gospel. And that's an encouragement and comfort to my faith. And for that I give thanks for you. Do you think Paul experienced doubt? I go back and forth on this. Do you think he experienced doubt? He was a man. He was a human being. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that seems pretty constitutive of the human experience. But it, it, he also had profound, profound encounters both with the resurrected Lord and in the third heaven. He's, he's given a, a unique glimpse into the truth of the gospel. But just as he was entrusted with a profound encounter with Christ, it seemed like the ballast to that experience was some profound rejection and persecution for the sake of Christ all of which I imagine would have caused some doubt. Thessalonica is a city in Macedonia, modern-day Greece. Uh, you can read about the call uh, of Paul to, 
preached the gospel in Macedonia in Acts chapter 16 and 17. It was a particularly difficult call for Paul. Uh, So Paul's on the east coast of the Aegean. He's in a city called Troas, which is in modern-day Turkey. And interestingly, the Spirit of God is keeping him from going to a number of places to preach the gospel. But then one day, Paul gets a vision of a man from Macedonia pleading with Paul to come over and preach the gospel. And Paul interprets this as the Lord calling him to go to Macedonia. So he and his companions cross the Aegean and they land in Macedonia and they go almost immediately to Philippi. You know Philippi? Letter to the Philippians is to the church in Philippi. Another remarkably sweet fellowship that Paul shared. But it wasn't easy in Philippi. It wasn't long after they arrived that they were beaten and imprisoned. You know that this ended well as we also have the account of the conversion of the Philippian jailers. But to get this vision to understand that God's calling me to go preach the gospel because the people are begging for the gospel to come and to show up and be beaten and imprisoned, I'd have had some questions. I'd have wondered if maybe I got it wrong. (laughs) From Philippi, they were driven to Thessalonica. Thessalonica didn't go much better. There was a riot Some of the believers were dragged into the city center and Paul and his companions ultimately had to flee from Thessalonica unto Berea. And to make matters worse, the people who hated him in Thessalonica didn't like him in Berea either, so they pursued him up there to drive him out. Things were tough. The ground that he managed to eke out was hard-earned in Thessalonica and Philippi and might account for some of the sweetness of fellowship that's reflected in his letters. Paul was also struggling when he wrote this letter. He hints at it in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. It's a poignant observation, isn't it? For not all have faith. If I were Paul, I would have wrestled. I would have wrestled with the truth of the gospel at certain points. I would have wrestled with the power of the gospel at certain points. I would have wrestled with doubt at certain points. But the question is, where do you turn for comfort? Where do you turn for assurance in the face of doubt? Where does Paul turn? give a number of answers, but fascinatingly, one of the places of comfort, one of the places of assurance for Paul is in the very fact that some did believe. In the very fact that the gospel did save some. He says, for we ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. To this he called you through our gospel. Paul's theology is unequivocal. All are dead in their trespasses and sins. Apart from the gracious intervention of God, no one would believe. Not all have faith, but some do. And the fact that some do demonstrates the power and the truth of the gospel because otherwise no one would. 
That's how counterintuitive the gospel is. Nobody reasons their way to the conclusion that I am a hopeless sinner in need of gracious intervention. Nobody reasons their way to Jesus Christ as the only hope for sinners. Nobody reasons their way from Christ, to Christ crucified upon the cross where I should have died. Christ raised from the dead so that I might live. Nobody riddles their way into that. If anyone professes that Jesus Christ is Lord, you can be sure that the power of heaven is active. And so we give thanks as we witness one another persisting in all manner of trials, all manner of difficulty, all manner of hardship with the profession that Jesus Christ is Lord. We have reason to give thanks. I remember, uh, has anyone lived abroad overseas? I lived overseas for three years. It was an incredibly hard, unsettling experience. The the unfamiliarity of the circumstances uh, deeply troubling to me, deeply unsettling to me. And I remember my first night living in Ukraine. I was dropped in a small village with four other American volunteers, and we each had our own host family. And I went back to mine. I didn't understand them. They didn't understand me. We had soup for breakfast. I thought that was very troubling. Um, the whole experience left me deeply, deeply uncomfortable and craving my family, craving home. I woke up that next morning wondering if I was going to make it. And then we got together, the five of us volunteers, and our hearts were knit together. We embraced. Because each one of us, by the very fact of our existence, bore witness to a place that we all knew. It bore witness to a place that was home. And the friendship and the bonds that were forged over that are some which continue with me to this very day. That's what the faith does for us. It assures us, it, it, encourages, it encourages us that this isn't just made up, that there is a place which is our home. The fact that Jesus Christ is Lord is taken upon your lips means that the fact that it's on my lips is no coincidence, but an act of heaven. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Not all have faith, but some do. And those that do are a blessing to me, for it assures me that the gospel is true, that indeed Jesus Christ is Lord. Later today, I imagine you'll have opportunity to share what you're thankful for. And I sincerely do hope that you have much to be thankful for. And I also hope that not the least of that is that you and your brothers and sisters in Christ have been spared a fate worse than death with the eternal punishment that awaits all those who do not believe. And you've been given a blessing better than life in communion with our triune God in Jesus Christ. And that the profession that Jesus Christ is Lord on the lips of anyone bears witness to the fact that indeed He is Lord, for none would confess this.
of their own accord. Join me in prayer. Father, we do give you thanks for the gift of salvation that you have worked in your Son. We give you thanks that you have snatched us from death and brought us to life. We give you thanks that you have snatched us from darkness and brought us into the marvelous light of your Son. We give you thanks for one another, for the encouragement that this mutual profession of faith brings, for the selflessness that your Spirit is working in our hearts, as even if it's a pale reflection of the selflessness which Christ himself has demonstrated in winning us for himself. We pray, Father, that you would continue to fortify these bonds, that you would continue to intensify the gratitude that we have towards you, for indeed, you have given us all things. We ask this in Christ. Amen. We'll close our time together.